There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the History of Europe, Key Battles, The Livonian Wars, Part 3 of 4. In the autumn of 1552, things were looking bright for Ivan the Terrible. By the age of just 22, the young Tsar had just gained military glory with the conquest of Kazan. The acquisition of strategic land in Asia gave his realm control over the wealth of the trade routes along the River Volga and opportunities to extend his people's influence further east and south. And his beloved wife, Anastasia, had just produced an heir to the throne. But then suddenly, plague struck the north of his lands. Perhaps half a million of his people perished in the cities of Novgorod and Peskov and the surrounding areas. And in the following year, Ivan himself fell ill with a fever, an occasion which sowed the seeds of Ivan's suspicions of imminent treason among the boyars, that is, the noble class of Muscovy. Ivan was at times unconscious, sometimes delirious, and his life was feared for. With his only heir, his six-month son Dmitri, his passing would turn Muscovy into another period of minority government, with, in all likelihood, years of political instability. Ivan became unusually jealous and fearful of the wrath of God, convinced that he was being punished for his sins. He summoned his court to his bed, but only a handful turned up, the others perhaps having made the assumption that Ivan would not survive, and so were already positioning themselves for the inevitable power struggles that would follow. Ivan, however, was not dying. He recovered just as quickly as he had fallen ill, having made note of who has hesitated in their loyalty to him or to swear fealty to his young son. Against the advice of his advisers, who wished him to concentrate on consolidating his hold on newly won Kazan, Ivan insisted on making a pilgrimage to the northern monastery of St. Cyril to give thanks to God. However, before the royal party reached their destination, Ivan's infant son, for reasons unknown, grew weak and died. In anguish, the Tsar plunged still further into prayer and supplication. On his return to Moscow, Ivan sent his army to put down a rebellion in Kazan. Any who resisted were dealt with harshly, stripped naked and piled up into a heap. 
Such brutal tactics intimidated the rulers of neighbouring Astrakhan into fleeing when pressed by the Muscovite army. Now the entire River Volga, the great trade route to the Caspian Sea, was in Russian hands. Russian horsemen rode on further south to the edge of the Caucasus, but there Ivan backed off, wisely deciding not to antagonise the Ottoman Sultan who had his own strategic interests in the area. The conquest of Kazan stopped raids coming into Muscovy from the east, but the Russians were still vulnerable from the south, from the one great, fully independent Khanate remaining, Crimea. The raids were a persistent threat, and captured men, women and children were sold as slaves to Asia Minor and northern Africa. The court in Moscow gave serious consideration to turning their military ambitions for conquest to Crimea, but instead they decided on what looked like an easier option, the southern Baltic coastline. The region's rulers, the Livonian order, had been in decline for decades, as described previously, and for Muscovy, seizing control of their lands had obvious benefits, providing access to the extremely profitable Baltic trade routes. The first stages of Ivan's invasion of Livonia went successfully. As described recently, the Russians achieved a major victory at the Battle of Hermes in August 1560, which crippled the military capabilities of the Livonian order. However, what Ivan had not taken into account was the great interest in the strategic location of the other regional powers, Denmark, Sweden and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. After initial victories in Muscovy's campaign into Livonia in 1558, Ivan agreed to a six-month truce. This gave other powers time to prepare. The Livonian order was too depleted to be able to stem the Russian invasion, which therefore left a power vacuum for other forces to fill. Denmark seized the island of Ursel, today known as Serema, off the coast of Livonia, and entered the competition for dominance in the eastern Baltic. And when Muscovy launched another offensive in 1560 and defeated the order's army, the northern city of Reval appealed for outside assistance. First they negotiated with Denmark, but finally opted in 1561 to invite the young new king of Sweden, Eric XIV, to take the city under his protection. For Sweden, the gain was a crucial step in gaining a foothold in the southern Baltic. Eric backed up his gain with the sweeping up of a few smaller coastal settlements nearby, consolidating his hold on the Gulf of Finland. The Russians, meanwhile, held on to the territory they had captured, notably the city of Narva in eastern Livonia. The last Grand Master of the Livonian Order, Gothard Kepler, agreed a settlement in March 1562 with King Sigismund II Augustus, Grand Duke of Lithuania. The Knight Brothers were finally secularised and Kepler himself became the hereditary Duke of Courland, today a regent in western Latvia. The burghers of Riga who had recognised the Grand Master as their temporal lord tried to cling on to their independence. The partition of Livonia into four occupied zones, with Russia holding the eastern portion, Denmark and Ursel, Sweden in Reval and northern Estonia, and Poland-Lithuania in the southwest, meant that by the end of 1562, instead of a weak military order, Ivan the Terrible now faced three strong opponents. 
the second phase of the conflict of the Livonian Wars, began in May 1563, when began the Seven Years' War between Denmark, who were aided by Poland and Lübeck, and Sweden. Both Denmark and Sweden were ruled by young kings, ambitious to make their mark. King Frederick II of Denmark wanted a return to the Kalmar Union, while King Eric XIV of Sweden wanted to break Denmark's dominating position in the Baltic. Eric's father, King Gustav I Vasa, had allotted three dukedoms to each of his three younger sons. The youngest son was only ten, and the middle showed early signs of insanity, leaving John as the only one in a position to claim independent power from his eldest brother. He was given the whole of Finland, from which he set out to carve for himself his own principality, hoping to take advantage of the chaos in Livonia. He also angered his brother Eric by marrying the sister of King Sigismund II of Poland. Swedish disunity encouraged King Frederick II of Denmark to declare war on Sweden in August 1563. He had Poland as an ally, as well as Lübeck, who held hopes of regaining control of Sweden's trade. Eric responded well by training his army in a novel linear formation with the bearers of firearms dispersed with blocks of pikemen. The navy was also expanded. At first Denmark made military gains, but Sweden was able to resist a series of land attacks and the blockade of Stockholm. The Peace of Stettin was signed in 1570 after seven years of bloody stalemate. Neither kingdom had made any gains, despite the great expense incurred and cost of so many lives. The war left a bitter legacy on both sides, both because of its length and because of the savagery with which it had been waged. A lesson learnt by both kingdoms was the importance of a strong navy. One result of the war was that Denmark was to be denied the possibility of becoming a major power in the eastern Baltic. Sweden's military resilience had been impressive, especially considering its turbulent politics. In early 1567, four years into the war, King Eric became mentally unstable and paranoid. He stabbed to death a member of the nobility with his own hands, and he ordered that other nobles who were held on treason charges be murdered by their prison warders. Events came to a climax in the autumn of 1568, when the nobles finally had had enough and rebelled. Eric was dethroned and Duke John was invited to take power. He accepted and was crowned King John III. John's long association with Finland and his marriage to a Lithuanian convinced him that Muscovy was the greatest threat to peace. The Grand Duchy of Lithuania was likewise feeling threatened by its eastern neighbour. By the late 1560s, it was becoming clear that its ruler, Sigismund Augustus, despite three marriages, was very unlikely to have any children. The imminent Pascome of the last male member of the Jagiellon dynasty concentrated minds on who should succeed him. The Lithuanian nobility, concerned about the rising power of Muscovy, realised they needed a closer union to protect them. The fall of Polotsk to Ivan the Terrible in 1563 was a particular shock because it removed a vital point of defence and rendered large areas of Lithuanian territories vulnerable. 
As negotiations about a possible strengthening of the Union dragged on, the Poles became increasingly fed up of their commitment to defend Lithuania without a reciprocal benefit. So Sigismund, determined to see through his project of union, directly transferred half the territory of Lithuania directly to the Kingdom of Poland. The Lithuanian aristocrats felt they had no choice but to accept the new reality. They stood to lose even more if they continued to resist the union. In fact, unlike the Lithuanian aristocracy, the Ukrainian elite saw little benefit in maintaining the de facto independence of the Grand Duchy, which was ill-equipped to resist increasing pressure from the Crimean and Nogay Tatars. The transfer of Lithuania's southern provinces to Poland had long-term consequences, given that the new boundary between Poland and Lithuania would later become the modern border between Ukraine and Belarus. There was to be a common council named Asaim, but Lithuania was to keep its own army, administration and laws. Resentment at the heavy-handedness of the king's tactics lingered for a while, but nevertheless the Union of Lublin, 1569, turned out to be a success. A single state was created, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which replaced the personal union of the crown of the Kingdom of Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Back in Russia, we last left Ivan the Terrible after he had recovered from a sudden fever. Everyone to harbour personal grievances, he watched how, while his life hung in the balance, courtiers spent their time trying to consolidate their own position, rather than tending to the needs of their sovereign. The failure of some of his closest advisers to show nothing but the utmost loyalty burned inside him a deep suspicion of his court advisers. His illness also demonstrated a mental fragility, which would plague him for the rest of his life. He was furious about the lack of progress in the campaign in Livonia and bitterly regretted agreeing a truce in 1559, believing, probably rightly, that it had stopped his army's momentum and enabled his enemies to regroup. This setback was followed soon after by a personal tragedy when his wife, Anastasia, died unexpectedly. Anastasia died on the 7th of August, 1560, at the age of 29, shortly after an attack by a raiding party of Crimeans on the city of Moscow. An apparently gentle and unassuming person, she was evidently much loved, not only by Ivan, and her funeral was the occasion for a huge popular demonstration. Isabel de Madariaga writes on her biography of Ivan the Terrible, that almost certainly Anastasia succumbed to the fate of so many women at that time, the anemia and exhaustion brought on by repeated pregnancies, 
added to grief at the death of four of her six young children. Historians have speculated that the Tsar loved his wife deeply and was profoundly moved by her loss. What is certain is that Ivan's family life changed dramatically from that time on, when he soon after took the first of one of his numerous later wives, and it is reported that the Muscovite court took on a bawdy quality unknown before. In the years that followed, Ivan began to hit out at the aristocratic clans of his court. Impatient of the lack of military success in Livonia, he focused his wrath on his two closest advisers, Alexei Adashev, who had been instrumental in the earlier victory in Kazan, and a priest named Sylvester. Both men had spoken out against the campaign in Livonia, convinced that the greater priority for Muscovy was defending against the Tatars of Crimea. In the summer of 1560, Ivan appointed Adashev as governor of newly conquered Ferin, a post of semi-exile. Unfortunately, Adashev's popularity there convinced Ivan that he was an enemy sympathiser. In late September, a council was convened to try Sylvester and Adashev on trumped-up charges, and neither was allowed to appear on his own behalf. Adashev, taken in chains to Dorpat, died soon after. Sylvester, deported to the Solovetsky Monastery, disappeared from the historical record. Two years later, in 1562, Ivan, frustrated by lack of success in Livonia, went further when he accused several more prominent aristocrats of disloyalty. The fate of the victims varied greatly. Some were forced to take monastic vows, some executed and some others were pardoned. Those restored to favour were compelled to sign formal declarations of their future loyalty, witnessed by large numbers of fellow courtiers. In the next two years, the purges continued to escalate. Several leading nobles were executed on suspicion of treason, providing more proof of Ivan's increasing impatience and brutality. Ivan became more personally isolated when his younger brother, Yuri, died in June 1563. Yuri had been born deaf and was mentally backward, never considered a candidate for the throne, and Ivan had felt some affection for him. As the war in Livonia reached stalemate and political life became ever more menacing, a number of Ivan's soldiers defected to the enemy. Most were relatively minor figures, but one was of real significance. In April 1564, Prince Andrei Kurbsky, an intimate friend of the Tsar and commander of the recently conquered city of Dorpat, decided he had had enough. Kurbsky was one of the most experienced officers. During the decisive siege of Kazan, he had commanded the right flank of the Russian army. As a friend of Adashev and Sylvester, he could never be sure when Ivan might decide to subject him to similar punishment. In the spring of that year, he lost an important battle near Vitebsk, and he himself was wounded. Rather than risk the wrath of Ivan, he slipped away and fled to join Polish service. He wrote to Ivan five long letters explaining his desertion and admonishing him for his cruelty. These letters and the two that Ivan sent in reply, writes Francis Carr in his biography of Ivan the Terrible, quote, from one of the most revealing verbal battles in European history, 
a head-on collision that is caused by the arrogant and insulting assumption of complete authority by the autocrat, an attitude that was bound to arouse and inflame anyone subjected to his degrading contempt. End quote. Kerbsky's letters are particularly invaluable since we have so few letters of any kind from Ivan or his court. The argument between Ivan and Kerbsky centres on the right of the subject to rebel. For his deeds, Ivan was unrepentant, repeating over and again that he was authorised by God to kill without mercy, with copious quotations from the Old Testament. Instead of reading back on his brutality, Ivan became even more cruel and tyrannical. During the second half of 1564, he planned a new strategy, a counter-attack against his most hated enemies. Not foreign armies, but his own people. Inflamed by intense fears that everyone around him was a traitor, he kept his plans to himself until the last moment. In December, Ivan left Moscow to celebrate the Feast of St Nicholas in one of his suburban residences. Then, instead of returning to his capital as expected, he journeyed northward until he reached the hunting lodge at Alexandrovna Slavoda. There, on the 3rd of January 1565, he made a startling announcement. He declared that he had left Moscow out of anger at the boyars and leaders of the church. He accused them of failing to defend their country and of oppressing the rest of the population. The clergy had angered him by interceding for those who had fallen in his disfavour. Since he could not tolerate the situation any more, he announced that he would abdicate. The boyars begged Ivan to remain on the throne and deal with traitors as he wished. Ivan agreed to remain Tsar, but on condition he would be allowed to reform the state and create what he called an oprichnina. Like a state within a state, the Oprichnina consisted of a separate territory within the borders of Russia, mostly in the territory of the former Novgorod Republic in the north. This region included many of the financial centres of the state and prominent merchant towns. Ivan held exclusive power over the Oprichnina territory, while the Boyart Council were left to rule the rest of the land and report only the most important matters of state to Ivan. Thus Muscovy found itself with two administrations, two armies and two separate groups of territories, one ruled by Ivan and the other, the so-called Zemshina, by the aristocrats of his old court. Writes Robert O'Cromany in his book, The Formation of Muscovy, 1304-1613, quote, The Oprichnina remains the most controversial episode of Ivan's reign. For generations, historians have argued with one another about the details of the Tsar's experiment, and even more vehemently about its basic direction and purpose. What did he hope to achieve by dividing up his realm and his administration? Determining Ivan's objectives and evaluating his success in reaching them is more difficult still. Historians of the reign have split into two camps. Some see the Oprichnina as a continuation of Ivan's earlier reforms with more violent methods. Other scholars regard Ivan's experiments not as projects of conscious social engineering, but as expressions of a paranoid personality's search for security in a threatening world. End quote. In all likelihood, the motivations of Ivan will remain mysterious. 
to complicate matters, no one could be certain where the borders between the two halves of the country lay, since the Oplichnina were made up of a patchwork of estates. Ivan put together a new class of servants to rule his half, the Oplichniki, who were given money and land and special privileges. They were given legal immunity so that no one could claim against them for any crime. A section of them, many of whom were former bandits, were given the task of extracting money and to publicly flog those who would not or could not pay. They wore black uniforms with black boots and a black cowl and seized estates, large and small. Those evicted were either settled in the other half of Russia, the Zemchina, or murdered. Torture was routinely used on aristocrats and peasants alike to extract confessions of guilt. Forms of capital punishment included hanging, decapitation, bludgeoning, impalement, drowning, freezing under ice and burning. Then, in mid-winter 1569, Ivan set off with an army to Novgorod for a further atrocity, having persuaded himself that the city was about to defect to Poland-Lithuania. On their way, the soldiers caused great carnage. All towns and villages on the approach to Novgorod, including the city of Tver, were subjected to robbery, arson, rape and murder. In the city of Novgorod itself, they went on a killing spree, which lasted five weeks. Estimated numbers of the total murdered varied from 27,000 to 60,000. Children and babies were not spared. After finishing in Novgorod, the army moved on to do likewise in Peskov. The local churches, monasteries and mansions were ransacked, and everything of worth stolen. Yet the gains of the Oplishniki came not only at the cost of those directly killed, but also of the numerous others who, driven from their homes, subsequently died from cold, hunger and disease. These internal events took Muscovy out of the Livonian War, at a time while Sweden and Denmark were engaged fighting each other. Not only this, but the chaos made Muscovy vulnerable from the south, and the Khan of Crimea, Devlet Jurey, was ready to take advantage. In 1571, with an army of 120,000 men, he advanced into Russia and reached the gates of Moscow without resistance. Ivan fled northwards to Rostov, 130 kilometres from his capital. An enormous number of prisoners were taken by the Tatars, perhaps 150,000, most of them women. Next, the invaders set Moscow on fire. Huge swathes of the city were engulfed and destroyed. The Khan, confident of crushing Moscow completely, renewed his campaign in Russia the next year. Ivan fled further north to Novgorod, bringing with him, it is reported, 450 cartloads of treasure. The Russians confronted the invading Tatars near the village of Molody, about 30 miles south of Moscow. The Russian forces, estimated at around 25,000 men, were placed under the supreme command of Prince Mikhail Vorotinsky. On the 30th of July, the armies clashed near the Lopasnaya River and fighting continued for several days. The Russians had with them a prefabricated mobile fortress, which housed numerous cannons, and that they hastily assembled atop a hill. With a mock retreat, they lured the Tatars to within range of the cannon, and they opened fire with devastating effect. 
the Tatars regrouped and a tense standoff began. The Russians gained advantage when they captured the son of the Khan while he was on a rash reconnaissance foray. Determined to liberate his son at all costs, Devlet Jure threw everything he had against the fortress, but the Russians slipped behind the Tatars and attacked. The result was a rout and total victory for the Russians. Moscow was saved. The victory at the Battle of Melody brought no end to Ivan's tortured state of mind, nor the purges. He let loose one wave of terror after another, singling out and destroying people who he regarded with suspicion or whom he regarded as threats to his power, who would often have murdered not just individuals but the entire family of his victims. The disaster of the burning of Moscow fueled Ivan's disillusionment with the Oplichnina. Already they were turning in on themselves, and their inability to defend the capital was the last straw. Ivan reunited his own principality with the rest of his realm and decreed that his subjects must not mention the Oplichnina again. The experiment had caused untold damage, mass murder, economic decline and social dislocation of much of Muscovy, particularly around the Novgorodian lands. After the abolition of the Oblichnina, Ivan displayed less energy and ambitious than before. He still let loose occasional waves of terror, but not as such a scale as before, and his subjects were exhausted after the dramatic events of recent years. My name is Carl Rylett, and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. As ever, it's great to hear from you, either on the Facebook page or the blog www.historyeurope.net or Twitter at historyeurope.kb or you can write directly to me carl at historyeurope.net Please join me next week for the fourth and concluding part on the Livonian Wars 1558-1583 to Thank you for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.